It's good to be here with all of you. I love being in these types of environments. I love being on college campuses uh, because here I find that people tend to be open-minded. You are in a place in your life when you are thinking deeply about the kind of person that God is forming you to be, uh, the decisions that you're going to be making in your life. And this is a community of faith. Some of us here identify as Christian. Uh, Some of you may identify with a different uh, faith background or no background at all. Um, But I believe that we are all at heart people of faith. We all believe in things that we cannot see or cannot touch uh, easily. We we believe in things that we hope for, things that uh, have not yet materialized. And so we all put our trust in something. And so I'm glad that you're here uh, with us today and allowing me just to speak into uh, this hope that we have. Uh, I serve as the superintendent of the Northern California District Church of the Nazarene. Some of you uh, have a background with our denomination. Uh, We are among, my district where I serve is among the most diverse uh, in the world, really. Uh, We have 90 congregations that I oversee that worship in 18 different languages. Uh, Before that, my wife Christina and I pastored at Trinity Church, which is a multi-site, multilingual church uh, just outside of Los Angeles uh, that serves the English-speaking, Spanish, Chinese, and Filipino communities. I also served as the international chaplain at Azusa Pacific University, where I led chapel for students from 30 different countries. Is anybody here from outside the U.S.? Some of you? Anyone traveled outside the U.S.? All right. Uh, I was born in the United States. I was raised in Canada. I met Jesus while I was in Taiwan. And I, uh, I'm married to a feisty Korean woman. In the past months, I have eaten Vietnamese pho, uh, Mexican tacos, Mediterranean falafels, Indian curry, Japanese udon, Peruvian lomo soltado, and southern fried chicken and grits. So... I, I love diversity. It's very tasty. Uh, I believe that every person is a unique expression of God's creativity and imagination. I see God's handiwork in every person that I meet. And I believe that every person was created by God and for God in the image of God. And through Jesus, we are invited into God's international family and global mission. God loves me. God loves you. And we remain to love God. That's who we are. That's why we exist. Now, I wish someone had told me that earlier in my life because I didn't become a Christian until my late 20s. My parents came from a Buddhist background. And there were about two times that I can recall when someone told me about Jesus, once in high school and once in college. And the details are fuzzy, but it went something like this. You are a sinner. And when you die, you're going to go to hell unless you believe in Jesus. Now, I'm sure they explained it better than that, but that's what I remember. That's what stuck with me. And I got to tell you, I was really turned off. I was offended. If that was the core message of Christianity, 
then I didn't want anything to do with it. Now, fast forward to today. I'm totally sold on the gospel of Jesus Christ. I fully believe that Jesus is Lord. I'm all in. So what happened? Well, I learned there's a lot more to the story. And someone was able to communicate to me the power and the beauty of the gospel in a way that was fresh and inviting and compelling. And it changed my life. Now, Christians believe that the mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus in the nations. Every believer is called to participate in that mission. And I want to share one way that we can approach conversations with people outside of our family, outside of our tribe, that is inviting and, for me, inspiring. What I want to share, it's not a method, it's not a technique, it's not a sales pitch, it's not a series of steps. It's just a a posture, it's an attitude that we take, a way of seeing and a way of relating to the world, a way of engaging people as followers of Jesus. Now, there are two questions that every person, no matter what your background, wonders about. Who am I and why am I here? Who am I and why am I here? Your identity and your calling. You're probably thinking deeply about these questions at this point in your life. Every one of us has a purpose. We all have something to contribute. We're all wired to meet a particular need, to to solve a particular problem, to right a particular wrong. You are here for a reason. You were made to be a blessing. In Genesis 12, God calls Abram, later to become Abraham, the the father of the people of Israel. And he he tends to, to make Abram the father of a new nation, a new people. And he says to Abram, leave your country, leave your people, go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you and all Peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In Ephesians 2.10, Jesus says, we are God's, sorry, Paul says, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has prepared certain works in advance for you and you specifically to do in your life. Now, there are lots of ways that we can do good. But is there a particular kind of good that we are supposed to be doing? Or do we just do random nice things for people and that's our purpose? I believe we're called to be a blessing. And that word means something very specific. The Hebrew word for blessing is the word barak, which means to bless. Yes, the name of our former president, right? Barak, which means to enrich or to make fertile to honor, to salute. So in Genesis 1.28, we read that God blessed, God enriched, God made fertile, God honored, God saluted the man and the woman that he created and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God enriches humanity and makes them fruitful and fertile and he honors them by giving this incredible status and purpose in the world. And these are not things they could have given themselves or obtained on their own. They were a gift 
from their creator. In other words, to bless means to add value to another. To add value to another. When, when we're blessed, somehow we become something more. We, we have more. There is an increase in position. There's an increase in dignity, an increase in authority, in possessions, in purpose. Now, when most people say, I'm blessed, what they mean is, I have lots of stuff, right? Or I have a good life, hashtag blessed, right? That's what they mean. I'm so, I got good stuff. I have a good life. That's not what it means, the word, ble- what makes a blessing a blessing is not what you have. What makes it a blessing is how you got it. Because blessings, by definition, come from outside of ourselves. In other words, you cannot bless yourself. That's why when you sneeze, someone else has to say, bless you, right? When you sneeze, you don't say, bless me, right? Someone else has to bless you. You cannot bless yourself. You have to be blessed by another. Blessings are, by definition, relational in nature. In other words, someone cared enough about me to come to my aid, to lift me up, to make me stronger, so I can say that I'm blessed. When I say I'm blessed, it means I've received the favor of another. I've been given power or possessions or dignity or purpose from outside of myself, In other words, to say I'm blessed means somebody loves me. Someone favors me. Someone made me something more. So blessings are tangible. Blessings, uh, to bless someone is not just to wish that person well. To bless is to add real tangible value to their lives. So when God says that you and I, listen up. When God says that you and I are going to be a blessing, God means that we are going to add tangible value value to other people's lives. We will give them things that they did not have before. It means that we are meant to be the proof, the evidence of God's favor and God's love for people. That's who you are. That's why you're here. You are both a receptacle and a conduit of God's blessings and love in the world. You are both a child of God and also a servant of God. Your identity is and your mission. Why am I here? To be loved by God and to serve God. That's who I am. So, how do we tangibly add value to other people's lives? What is it that we have to give that people cannot obtain from their, for themselves that have to come from the outside? Well, Christians believe what we have to offer people is the gospel, this good news, life through Jesus. The Son. The primary way that we bless the world is by fully dedicating ourselves to the task of proclaiming and embodying the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what is the gospel? If you asked 20 Christians, you'll probably get a bunch of different answers. Sometimes we don't agree. What is the gospel? Do you know? Could you communicate it clearly in your own words, this good news that we carry and we share with the world? The gospel I heard, as I told you as a teenager, was rooted in John 3.16. Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And what a lot of people interpret that to mean is that if we believe in Jesus, we won't go to hell, we'll go to heaven. Now, that's a true statement. There's a lot we'd have to unpack about that. 
there's a lot of things that, that we would need to clarify, and it's true, and, and Christians believe this is good news, but this is not actually the gospel that Jesus preached. This is not the gospel that Jesus was famous for wherever he went. It's part of the gospel. It's not the whole gospel. The gospel of Mark opens with these words, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And just a few verses later, Jesus states this gospel in very clear terms. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe this gospel, this good news. And this is the gospel that Jesus preached throughout his ministry. It's what his disciples preached when Jesus sent them throughout the countryside. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe this gospel. After Jesus died, was raised from the dead, he spent more time continuing to teach his disciples about the kingdom of God. What is the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus is Lord and his kingdom has come near. In other words, a new world is coming. And it's already here in which everything that God wants to happen will actually happen. There's going to be a world where there's no more hate, no more pain, no more suffering, no more evil, no racism, no bigotry, no more cancer, no hunger, no more war, no poverty, no more slavery. That kingdom is coming close and near. And wherever people bow the knee before Jesus and call Jesus Lord, we begin to see glimpses of that kingdom breaking out in our midst. In other words, the good news is that earth is going to look more and more and more like heaven. Ravi Zacharias famously said that Jesus did not come to make bad people good, but to make dead people live. Dallas Willard often said the gospel is not about how to get to heaven when we die. It's about how to live in the, hev- in, in the kingdom, how to get to heaven before we die. The gospel is not that there is life after death. The gospel is that there is life before death. A new day is dawning. The kingdom of God has come near and Jesus is its king. Now that's good news. Because... To say that Jesus is Lord means that you and I and everyone else is not. The human leaders and institutions of the world will inevitably disappoint us. I get disappointed every day when I turn on the news. They will fail us. But Jesus will not. He is Lord. And sometimes when I'm overwhelmed by everything that's happening in the world, that's all that allows me to sleep at night. Jesus is Lord. His kingdom is coming. And we as citizens and agents of this kingdom are called to give people a little sneak preview, a glimpse of this kingdom to come. God says in his kingdom, there's going to be no more sickness or pain or death. And so we ask, how do we make this world look more like that? God says in his kingdom, there's going to be no hunger or thirst or poverty. So we ask, how do we make this world look more like that one? God says in his kingdom, there's going to be no division or no hate. In Christ, there's no Jew or Gentile, no male or female. There's no racism or misogyny or discrimination in heaven. How do we make this world look like that one? 
And then when people ask us, why do we advocate so hard for justice? Why do we care for people on the margins? Why do we pour out our lives like this? We say Jesus is Lord. His kingdom is near. We want to show people what they have to look forward to and invite them to participate in what God is doing. Believe this gospel. Change the entire focus and direction of your life and follow this king. So we're called to be a blessing and to add value to the world around us. And I pray that's what you're doing while you're in college, that you are considering this question. How can I be a blessing? How can I add value to the people around me? And the primary way that I believe we do that is to embody and share this gospel of the kingdom that Jesus is Lord. He's making all things new, beginning with you and me. We work together to give people a sneak peek of this coming kingdom. Now, as we fulfill this mission, there is a surprising truth contained in the scriptures that should give us all reason to radically rethink the way that we engage with people outside of the faith. So if you are a, a, not a Christian, this is... I believe the posture that we should have when we're engaging with you and inviting you into uh, what God is asking us to do. In Acts 2.17, in the very first sermon that Peter ever preaches when the church, after the church is born, he quotes the prophet Joel and he says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. And everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. What we learn here is that God is going to pour out his spirit on everybody, even the Christians. In addition to the Christians. The prophecy goes to, starts by saying that God's going to give, be giving his spirit and pouring out his spirit on all people. And then he says, as a, almost as an afterthought, oh, and on, my, on the Christians too. Oh, on the church too. Oh, on, the, on my people as well. On all people. God is giving all people, all kinds of people, People outside the church, visions and dreams of the coming kingdom of Jesus. Now think about that. There are people who are not followers of Jesus who are working to end poverty and cure disease, who are looking to provide clean water and seek justice for the oppressed, who are providing job training for widows in India who are working to end human trafficking and child slavery, people who are trying to help refugees rebuild their lives, people who are orf uh, advocates for orphans and foster kids, and they are all, whether they realize it or not, joining God in making earth look more like heaven. And here's the thing, we should be considering them allies in the kingdom. They may not yet call Jesus Lord, but they are our friends and even our partners in the gospel. There are some Christians that only want to work with other Christians, only want to buy from other Christians, only want to sell to other Christians, only want to eat at Christian-owned restaurants like Chick-fil-A, right? We should be looking anywhere and everywhere for people who want to join us in doing good and being a blessing. 
We should be looking for evidence that God is pouring out his spirit in the world, giving people dreams and visions of the kingdom, even if they don't know Jesus personally. Because there are several instances in the Bible where we see God working with outsiders to accomplish his purposes. Joseph worked with the Egyptians to alleviate famine in Genesis 41. Nehemiah asked for resources from King Artaxerxes of, the, of Persia to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Luke writes of a Roman centurion whose servant was about to die from illness and the Jewish elders advocated on his behalf saying, this man who's not one of us, but this man loves our nation and he has built our synagogue. And let me tell you why this is so important. Because the gospel is about the God who loves all people, sent his son to die for all people, who offers new life to all people, and therefore God can redeem anyone, can use anyone. The Israelites believed that the people of Moab were bad. Deuteronomy 23 says the Moabites were not allowed to join the assembly of the Lord. But then comes this story of Ruth the Moabite, who is held up as an example of faithfulness and is one of five women listed in the genealogy of Jesus. The Israelites believed that the people from Uz were evil. But then we read about the story of Job, a man from Uz who was the most blameless man on earth. The Israelites were taught that no eunuch was to be allowed into the community. But then in Acts 8, we read about an African eunuch who was welcomed into the church. The Israelites hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated them back. But then Jesus tells a parable in which a Samaritan turns out to be the hero of the story, showing mercy to a man that a Jewish priest refused to help. Who, who are the Moabites and the Uzites and the eunuchs and the Samaritans today, the people that often don't feel welcome in the church. It's no secret that there are Christians who don't think very highly of Muslims. It drives me crazy. The LA Times published a story about a Libyan-born Muslim named Mohammed Bzik, who lives in Azusa, about 15 minutes from the church where Christine and I used to pastor. And Mohammed is a foster parent. He's been doing this for 22 years. He and his wife started taking kids in in the 80s. Now, she passed away recently, but Muhammad is still fostering. Now, what makes him unique is that he and his late wife were the only and still are the only foster parents in the entire county that would take in terminally ill children. And they care for them until they die. More than 40 dying children have spent time under their roof. He's buried 10 of them. It's an enormous job. Mohammed hasn't taken a day off in seven years. And when he's asked why he does it, he says, it's my faith. I take those kids. I know they need somebody. I know there's not many people who will do that for them. His current foster daughter is six years old. She's blind and deaf has very little brain function at all, could die at any moment. And he says, they put them in a facility or send them to the hospital. They never have a family. I will take them, and they will have family. And when they die, they will die with their family. Is God using Muhammad 
a Muslim, to reveal something about God's heart for the orphan, for the vulnerable. Is this a glimpse of the coming kingdom? I think so. Does Muhammad share our convictions about Jesus? Does he call Jesus Lord? No, not yet. But he's sure doing something that Jesus would do. He acts more like a Christian than many people who wear that label. And I see God working in his life. Don't you? And this story is played out again and again and again, both in the Bible and throughout church history. This is how God operates. God surprises us by raising servants from their most unexpected places. God can use anybody. God can pluck up a Buddhist kid from Canada and introduce Jesus to him in Taiwan and bring him here in front of you. And our mission is to go fishing for the next Ruth the Moabite, for the next Job from Uz, for the next African eunuch, for the next Good Samaritan, for the next Matthew the tax collector, who becomes Matthew the apostle, for the next Peter, formerly known as Simon, for the next Paul, formerly known as Saul. One day, Christians believe every knee will bow before a king, the king of kings, Jesus. We have this incredible joy and privilege and honor of looking for the people that God's already calling and walk with them until they recognize Jesus. Jesus invites us to be fishers of people. What are we fishing for? What are we inviting them into? We're not telling people how they can get to heaven. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not about how to get to heaven. It's how heaven has come to us through Jesus. It's not about how to get to heaven. It's about how to get to God. That's our message. So what are we fishing for? We are fishing for the sons and daughters of God. We are fishing for partners in the gospel. We are looking for signs that God is working in someone's life that he is giving them dreams and visions of the coming kingdom. When we spot those signs, we say, excuse me, I think God is speaking to you. I think God is calling you. I think God is going to use you or is using you to bless people, to add tangible value to their lives. I belong to a community full of people like that. We're looking for people like you. Would you like to meet my friends? That's how I became a believer. That's how I became a follower of Jesus. Someone invited me into something beautiful and extraordinary and good, and I'm going to give my entire life to this. So I'm asking you as friends to go look for the people that God is calling. Ask them to join in what God is doing. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, there are thousands of people, millions of people on this earth that have been receiving dreams and visions from you. And they don't know where these things are coming from. Not yet. 
but I believe you're calling them. I believe you created all of us to be a blessing, to join you in the renewal and the redemption of all things. And I pray that in our relationships with people, we have an open hand, open hearts, that we welcome people. We help them to name what it is that God is doing. Help us to approach others with great humility, a sense of hope. For we are all people of faith. And there are those of us who have put that faith in you, Jesus. We ask you to help us to invite as many as we can into your glorious kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please. Please stand and receive this benediction. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and the exploitation of people so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer pain, rejection, hunger, and war, so that you may stand in solidarity with the poor, the vulnerable, and the hurting. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that even you can make a difference in this world, so that you can do what others claim cannot be done, to bring healing, justice, restoration, and the hope of God to a fragile and broken world. In other words, as our pastor has shared this morning, may God bless us in order to be a blessing to others through Christ our Lord. Amen.